I find that there is so much judgment in our conversation. Maybe we're in a brainstorming sessions and you come in with an idea. And the first thing that I think of is no, because here are the 1700 reasons for why that is not going to work, especially when your idea is different from mine. And being curious means, okay, let me understand that better. Um, why is it that you think this is a good idea? Uh, what made you think of it? And so those are skills that we can practice, uh, but we're more likely to practice them if we recognize and refer to them as, in fact, skills that might seem simple, but actually don't come naturally to most of us. Welcome to the Leading Transformational Change podcast. Our passion is to help you lead and build heart-healthy organizations with a culture of purpose and integrity. I'm your host, Tobias Sturluson, and I'm the co-founder of Heart Management. Can having a bias for successful outcomes make us overlook unethical behavior? How do we avoid letting this pandemic sink our culture? And what strategies can we use to engage with opposing views in our workplaces? Today you're in for a treat. I had the privilege of having a wide-ranging conversation with Harvard Business School professor Francesca Gino award-winning researcher who focuses on why people make the decisions they do at work and how leaders and employees have more productive, creative, and fulfilling lives. We talked about our fascinating research on ethics, sustained collaboration, corporate culture, and how we can show up more authentic at work. All themes that are vital for leading and building heart-healthy organizations. Francesca is the author most recently of Rebel Talent, and her studies have been featured in The Economist, The New York Times, Harvard Business Review, among many other publications. Before we jump into the conversation, if you enjoy this podcast, I would be so, so grateful if you would take the time to rate or subscribe this podcast on iTunes. It helps us get the message of heart-healthy organizations to much more people, and it means so much to me and our team. Thank you in advance. Francesca, it's really, really a privilege to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. It's such a wonderful pleasure to be here. When looking into your research and also looking into a lot of other people's research where I find your name keep coming up time after time, I'm really amazed by your productivity and the breadth of your work and thinking. And we're going to touch on a number of kind of key themes that are important to us on this podcast. But first, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your journey. What would you say? And, and maybe there isn't anything, but if there is, what would you say is maybe the overarching theme or vision or perhaps motivation that guides you in your research and how did you come to discover that? I love the fact that you turned it into a strength and so you're talking about the breadth of the topic. Sometimes when my students uh, look at it and say, aren't you a little scattered? Uh, but the reason is how I get motivated in the work that I do and it always starts with what it is that is going on in the world. And so many years ago, I would say two decades ago, um, I got very interested in trying to understand why is it that good people do bad things. And that was very much motivated by reading the news and walking into organizations and realizing that a lot of leaders were struggling to understand uh, why is it that 
some of their employees were cutting corners in a way that was not good for the organizations or lying or engaging in misconduct. And with time, I then looked at a different type of rule breaking that was positive. And so at a time when the world seems to be one that keeps on changing and we're required to adapt, I then decided to focus on the people who seem to be doing that so well, or at least better than us. But it's always motivated by what I see in the world. And I spend a lot of my time these days in Zoom room or Microsoft Teams talking to leaders uh, and people like you to try to understand what keeps you up at night. And those are the type of questions that really get me interested uh, in doing the research and bring back some some answers. I love that. Have you found like throughout those different topics that, that you have found like interesting along the way or that you found as you kind of look at the world, what is going on? Is, is there something that you're seeing? Is there something that you're, let's say, this is something that you would like to bring more of into the world based on based on what you're seeing? Yeah, so one of the things that uh, got me motivated to also share some of my findings through podcasts like this one or writing books that are more accessible to uh, leadership audiences or to really people who don't read academic papers, which is most of the world. Uh, but the motivation came from the fact that I think often there are simple solutions to big issues that people are feeling they're experiencing at work. And so I thought there was the potential to be helpful uh, since we do spend a lot of time at work. We do spend a lot of time working with others. And so what are some of those simple ideas that we can all apply to make life better? I'll give you concrete examples. And this comes from actually some of the work that they've done during the pandemic. With a colleague of mine, Dan Cable, who's at the London's Business School, we looked at engagement level, work engagement levels throughout the pandemic. And what we found in our own data, and we have data from over 8,000 people across different parts of the United States. In fact, all states are represented. But what we found is that there was a decline. In fact, work engagement declined by 16%. And we were curious to understand why, why is that it? In fact, some people expected the opposite. People are reclaiming their commuting time. Or sometimes we hear leaders and employees telling us that they enjoy sitting down with their families for dinner, despite the fact that, again, we are in this pandemic and in a situation of, of crisis. And we were interested in understanding what caused that decline and what it came down to in our research is leaders' behavior. So leaders play a role and often unintentionally they act in ways that makes the problem bigger rather than smaller. And so by pointing out the issues, but also giving them ways to solve them, uh, I think that we can see the research applies in the work that leaders and employees do in their organization. So, for instance, one of the things that we found is that leaders who tend to be more focused on the opportunity or they embrace more of a curious mindset can be quite contagious in their approach. 
But often that's not the default response. We focus on the constraints or we focus on how nostalgic we are of the usual way of working or how quickly we want to go back to the way it used to be. I love that. And I think that is such an important research. And I'm so, so happy that we could talk about that as well. And I think through this pandemic, one question that has kind of been important for us has been kind of what is this season making possible? And I've just noted the same thing as, as you, you've been saying, that I think it's it becomes very negative when we keep on saying when we can go back to, and, and, and I guess it has to do with our pictures of what success looks like. We had uh, Edgar Schein on a, on a recent podcast, and, and one of the, the things that he've said that, that has helped me so much is the thought that we create culture based on our assumptions or beliefs about what made us successful in the past. And do you, do you think that has something to do with it, that concept of that we have a hard time kind of letting go of our old assumptions of what success looks like? First of all, I want to point out that it's what you just said is beautiful. And it gave me this moment of uh, great pause and happiness since I think what gets me up every morning is the idea that there is going to be a person like you in a world like yours, the sort of saying, what you said changed the way I approach my work or uh, my leadership. So just for that, I I hope uh, there are going to be many Ed Shines uh, moments in, in my life. I think this is very motivating. But to answer your question, in 2018, I published a book called The Rebel Talent, Why It Pays to Break the Rules at Work and in Life. And the book was very much motivated by a very simple observation. I took on a strange hobby since I was visiting all sorts of organizations across the globe. And I started going in very intentionally with a set of cynical eyes, let's just say that. So I would pay attention to ways of working or maybe procedures, processes, systems that to the eyes of a person who didn't work there really made no sense or they made little sense at least. Again, I think that every organization has them. If I took you on a tour of Harvard Business School, I think you would point them out pretty easily. And yes, it's easier for an external person to see them. But what was fascinating to me was that I then asked people, why is it that you do things this way? Or why is it that there is this process? And the answer was always the same. We have always done it this way. And to me, it was this big example of complacency We've been successful or we're just comfortable with the usual way of working. And so we stop asking whether we could be doing things differently or approach the work differently or interact with our colleagues differently or lead in a different way. And to me, the leaders that have been most successful and the employees who have been the happiest or have been the best at thriving in their own work are actually leaders and employees who retain their curiosity, who question their assumptions, who didn't just sit with what's comfortable and familiar, but embraced new ways of working and thinking. I love that. I think that's so helpful. And on the topic of of living in this time of a pandemic, uh, I I read something that you wrote together with Jennifer Chatman, who has been on this podcast, and you wrote about how we should not let the pandemic sink our company culture. And I think that is something that I hear a lot from, and I'm sure you do too, from leaders, from 
HR leaders and ethics leaders and so on. What can we actually do? And and you were talking about a couple of different things in this article. Two of the things you were talking about was our approach to our values. And could you just talk a little bit about that, what that means? Mm-hmm. Like me, you probably heard many, many organizations say people are our biggest asset. It's a different version of that. I used to hear this a lot. Uh, from top executives pre-COVID. But what the crisis has done was to offer an opportunity to leaders to stay true to their values and really show that these are not just words written somewhere or that are spoken at times where things are going well, but they could really lean into those values at a time of crisis. And leaders and organizations that have done well, I think, have been thriving despite the constraints of the crisis, or at least even if they have not been thriving, they've demonstrated something truly important to their employees, and it's the fact that they are truly living by their values. So a couple of organizations come to mind. One is And Pizza, which we mentioned in the article, and this is a chain Uh, with stores in different parts of the United States. And the end percent in the name of the company stands for unity. And they call their people the tribe. They truly spend a lot of energy and effort in making sure the people feel and in fact are their best and most important asset. And during the pandemic, very early on, before others used some of the same policies, they looked at their workers and said, you know what, we're going to raise your wage. You know what, we're going to think about other benefits. So they partnered with Lyft to make sure the people had uh, secure and safe ways of being driven to work and also go back to their home. They figure out ways in which they could give um, other type of perks, if you will, that could be helpful in this moment, whether it was uh, being able to watch TV for free or having uh, food for free to you and to your families. And so it was ways simple ways sometimes, but they were investments that the company made to say, we said this, we meant it. And I think that that's truly powerful. At a moment where we're going to be out of this crisis, I think that those very people are going to look at their leaders and organizations and say, I want to stay. And other organizations that very early on made a commitment to something similar, because again, they talk about respect for their people as one of the most important values in the organization and in the culture is a different organization. It's an Italian organization. They're called Brunello Cucinelli. Uh, they are in the high fashion industry. And the founder, Brunello Cucinelli, is actually a person who truly believes in respect and people having dignity. Uh, that came from seeing his father move from the farm to the city, working in a factory and arriving home every night, almost with tears in his eyes because of how he had been treated at work. It was almost like being a slave rather than being a person. And so uh, Brunello Cucinelli in that moment made a commitment if he had found himself being a leader in an organization to do things differently, to give dignity and respect to the people who work with him and for him. And so 
right at the beginning of the pandemic, he made a commitment of not laying off anyone. And so those are important signals. They're investments. There are ways of showing that it's not just words that we throw around that are part of our culture, but that we truly mean it. I love those examples. And, and now I don't remember which organization it was, but I heard in an interview with a, a leader of a quite major organization and, and they realized that they were not going to be able to keep all their employees actually because their company or their, their market went to a total standstill. So they, they were really going to need to cut down. And he said, I, I realized that we're going to have to be really, really great at letting people go. And I think that there's something so good in that because in, in their response, then they were looking at, so how do we actually help people transition to other companies who are maybe doing well in this season and what can we do? And I, I just thought that was an example that we can actually live up to or, or live by those principles and, and treat people with dignity, even in situations where the worst case kind of situation happens. But something that I'm thinking about is, of course, what we need for this to have that type of approach is that we need to have more of a long-term mindset where, and of course, in a, in a time of a pandemic, we, we can become very, very much, and especially maybe a year ago, very much short-term survival. And because I think as well, when we when we start talking about, which we will do, talk about ethics and, and all those different aspects. I think many leaders might ask themselves, why do we have to be talking about this? Why is this important? And I think it only becomes, and, and being values driven, I think it only becomes important if you have a, a long-term perspective, because it's in that perspective that you can see that it actually has meaning. So for you as somebody who's working with teaching uh, future leaders, teaching future managers, and of course also teaching a lot of executives and, and speaking to them. What what do you see kind of works in terms of helping us having more of that kind of long-term mindset and not be too stuck on just how we kind of mitigate the, the present? I think that's such an important aspect and mindset for everyone really to embrace because it allows us to focus on the fact that despite all of the hurt really that we've experienced in so many ways, because this has been a pandemic that was a crisis from a health standpoint, from a financial standpoint, from a social standpoint, there is so much that got caught up within the same pandemic, if you will. But I think that keeping the long term is going to allow us to be more reflective of what we've learned over the last year. It's going to allow us to not only uh, remind ourselves of all the constraints and ways of feeling that it was an unwanted moment of reflections, but I think it's going to allow us to actually truly think about what it is that we did that was quite good. I often talk with employees and leaders that tell me that in these moments of crisis, one of the thing that they saw happening quite naturally is people bringing out the best of themselves. So rather than seeing the usual silos, so people were more able to collaborate across departments or units or functions. Or uh, we have a hard time changing and adapting to new situations or new information, and they saw more agility in their people. And I feel that that is a muscle that we can 
hopefully keep on exercising even after the pandemic. But I think it's more likely for us to be able to work that muscle if we keep that long perspective. And I think that the tendency that we actually have because we're human beings is to see the present and stay focused on the present and the short term rather than thinking more long term. So I've appreciated the conversations of uh, leaders and employees that are able to think a little bit more longer term. If I go back to end pizza, it's interesting that during this time of crisis, they've been able to raise money. And they've actually opened quite a few new stores. And I think that they've done that, keeping this long perspective in mind. That's amazing. And I'm just reflecting on what you say. I'm thinking that perhaps we all kind of need a, to, to assess, I mean, the situation and, and also assess where we are at to make sure. I, I love the, the, the picture of, of a muscle that is not something that we don't lose that. So maybe it is something where we can look at thinking, what is it that we've lost? Because I think it's also important to let yourself grieve what is lost. And and uh, something that was important for, for us at the beginning of this pandemic to actually grieve things that were lost, but also what is it that we've gained and what is it that we've learned? And how do we make sure that the things that we have learned, that we don't lose that as soon as things start turning back into something that might look similar to what we had before? Absolutely. I used to uh, teach a lot of executives and it usually is we're in either in a Harvard Business School classroom. So it's usually very large. There are nine boards. You run up and down the stairs. You get close to people. You record their comments on the board. And at first, this felt uncomfortable. But there was a moment where I said, what is actually the opportunity? And all of a sudden, you get to leverage a very different medium in a really powerful way. I kind of like to be in the presence of a lot of people from all sort of parts of the world. And each of us has an equally sized window on my screen. It feels more inclusive. Or usually in my classes, especially when they are discussion-driven, uh, you need to raise your hand and you need to be confident in what you have to say. And now there is the potential to, yes, do that, but also contribute via chat. And so the quieter people get a different way of contributing to the class. Or if I'm saying something that seems to not resonate so well with the executives who are taking the class or that are being part of this discussion, you can stop and say, Okay, let's put the chat on fire and express in a few words how everybody's feeling uh, in talking through these ideas. And so you get access to 250 minds all at the same time. So there are things that are powerful. And what I worry, especially in looking at how many leaders are talking about the crisis and sort of seeing the end of it, what I worry about is that in the run to going back to what used to be as quickly as possible in being affected by this nostalgia uh, that we are not going to be working that long-term muscle and we're not going to be thinking about what it is that we've learned and how is it that we can leverage it going forward. That's so, so good. And I, I wanted to kind of track back to, to where uh, we were talking in, in, in the beginning of of one part of the work that you've been doing around ethics and uh, around kind of why do good people do bad things? And one of the quite, I think, more 
recent work that you've done on that has to do with something that uh, psychologists call outcome bias and how it can make us overlook uh, unethical behavior. And I read that in Harvard Business Review. I found it to be super, super interesting, your article on that. And it, it also connects a little bit to this. I think another aspect of this, which I would say is moral licensing, when we think we have a good mission or a good organization, we allow ourselves to do things that are not ethical or to overlook things that are not ethical. And what you have looked at is that because of the outcome, that can make us overlook if it looks like we have a good outcome. Could you could you speak a little bit about that, how it manifests itself and, and how we can avoid it? Yeah, the, the outcome bias is a really important bias that has been studied for quite some time, even in the context of decision-making more broadly rather than ethics specifically. And the idea is quite simple. The idea is that very naturally as human beings, we judge the quality of the decision based on the outcome that those decisions led to rather than the process. And so if, uh, for example, your thinking or way of acting wasn't great, but then the outcome is a good one, is a positive one, that's fine with us. Uh, and instead, if the outcome is bad, then we go and, and blame uh, whatever it is that led, that led to it. And it's interesting that when my colleagues, Max Bismuth at Harvard Business School and Don Moore at Berkeley, we looked at this in the context of ethics and we found the same patterns of results that people get upset about behaviors that might be unethical only if they actually lead to poor outcomes. And too often, even if the process or the behavior, it's really one that we point to as uh, ethically compromised, if the outcome is good, we might not say anything about it. And we thought that the consequences and the implications of that are actually quite bad, especially in thinking about the culture that you're creating by letting bad, from an ethical standpoint, processes or actions go when they led to a good outcome because they're very likely to repeat themselves or people are likely to walk away thinking uh, that you really don't take ethics or morality that seriously. Uh, I also find interesting that you mentioned moral licensing, especially when applied to cultures or values. And you're right. There is a lot of work that suggests that if we are after something good in our cultural values, that often we feel that that gives us the license uh, to act in ways that, that might mean not treating people fairly or having practices that are morally questionable. So just thinking about the implications of this and the implications of, of this perspective on outcome bias, that if we, if we would look at some of the scandals that have happened and, and that, that became highly publicized and, and, and so on. And I've had the opportunity to interview some of the people who've been going into those organizations and uh, chief ethics officers and so on at Volkswagen, Telia and, and so on. And I'm just wondering, could it be that if it wouldn't have become that highly publicized scandal that we wouldn't in that case have really looked at it as problematic, but it was the, the thing in itself that it's, it's become, and, and also, how could we mitigate that or how, how could we encourage leaders to think in a different way so that we see, just like you say, that there is always a cost. There's a cost for the culture of the organization. 
there there might be a cost actually on and and societal cost that we're that we're not counting in because we're only looking at risk mm-hmm. it's interesting the what was motivating me in, in my work uh was to try to shift the thinking away from it's just about a few bad apples to saying no if we actually look at all of us even people who care about being moral who care about doing the right thing we might find ourselves under pressure under situations uh to actually take the wrong route and i think that that shift in mindset is truly important because they shift your attention from let's go find the bad people and push them out of the organizations to say let's take a much different approach let's truly make sure that from a cultural standpoint people understand that we care about this that we also give them the skills that they need to make sure that they're approaching their work differently and sometimes it comes down to the basic I mentioned earlier Brunello Cucinelli it's interesting that one of the values in the organization is respect and so if we think about ethics and morality from a broad standpoint that treating your colleagues and your customers fairly I think uh, would qualify as an element and the organization is known for firing people if they demonstrate lack of respect and they also are famous for stories that are told on the importance of respect and so i think that if we shift from the bad apple type of thinking to all of us under certain circumstances may find ourselves acting in ways that is not consistent with our moral compass then as leader we think about culture and other mechanisms that can serve as ways to encourage good behavior rather than uh, bad ones. When I think about where a lot of organizations are nowadays in the context of ethics, what comes to mind is all of the discussions about social injustice and unconscious bias more generally. And I am inspired and feeling good about the fact that a lot of organizations at least are asking tough questions and deep questions about how do we create a more inclusive environment but i think that again those who are going to make meaningful progress are those that are going to realize that this is not just an exercise of checking the box we're going to train people for 3 hours and then uh, they're ready but they're really on a journey where the values are clear, the skill of practice and that we're going to have conversations when people are not behaving according to what we want to see in terms of our values and our culture. Uh so 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 helpful and I'm thinking that because we we talk about outcomes I guess again it maybe has to do also with how we look at success and how we measure success and and that we need to broaden our definition of what success actually is because if it is too narrow then we see a good outcome in one specific metric but but perhaps if we would have more metrics that would be helpful to to actually assess our organizational health in that sense then then perhaps that would help us as well mm-hmm. yeah when i talk to organizations and leaders these days about 
just to stay with diversity and inclusion, for instance, I say we need to track progress. Let's ask people who have experienced injustice or bias. Let's go back to them after we've done training or we started on a journey. And I actually really like the idea of this journey and investments and commitment that we're making to things that are different. One of the case studies that I wrote now it's a, over a year ago that was quite inspiring on this respect is a case study on how Starbucks reacted to the incident of discriminations that happened in one of their stores back in April of 2018. And the story that made the news was that they decided on May 29th to close 8,000 of their stores to do some unconscious bias training. But the story that is not told often is that that was just the beginning. It was the start of a much longer journey where on a regular basis, in fact, every few weeks, they have conversations about issues of bias or issues of differences or ways in which partners are reporting they're struggling in doing their work. And it's those conversations that repeat themselves over time and the guidance and support that the organization is giving to their partners that I think is making a difference in terms of the experience and not only the customers having their source, but also the partners themselves. That's that's so helpful. On on this season of the podcast, we, we're putting a special emphasis on how we can create a greater sense of unity within our organization and a unity that doesn't assume that we agree on everything, which I would say is, is very unhealthy, actually. But instead, we embrace diversity and we create a safe space for dissenting voices while also being united in purpose and our desire to have a positive impact on our stakeholders. And one thing that seems to make that maybe a bit extra difficult today is that it appears like we have an increasing number of irreconcilable differences and maybe especially politically and where we sometimes or perhaps many times seem to speak at each other and not so much with each other. And you've been a part of a study that I found fascinating on how we can improve engagement with opposing views by being better at showing receptiveness. And and you identified four strategies that can help us build that receptiveness. And I think it is so important for anyone who is in an organizational context where we actually have to make sure that we can listen to each other and hear each other and operate together, respect each other, even though we might not see things in the same light. So could you, could you help us understand that conversational receptiveness and how to apply those strategies? Absolutely. I was struck by how often people at work at very unproductive disagreements. And I got curious because, as you said, the part of how we get to leverage our differences and really end up with better decision-making, more creative ideas, is because we're opening up to the possibility of just talking through different viewpoints and perspective on an issue, a problem, or an idea. And so with my colleagues, I started looking at the language that we use when we engage in disagreements, uh, even very heated conflicts. In fact, some of our work was done by recruiting people here in the United States and putting them in situations where they talked about their different political views uh, in the context of the previous uh, president. And what we found is that people realize that coming into a disagreement with the willingness of showing more receptivity can be helpful. 
But what they don't realize is how exactly is going to be helpful. They don't realize that the conflict is going to end up sooner, that it's going to be more enjoyable and productive, and also that their receptiveness is going to be contagious, and they themselves are going to be more persuasive and able to change people's mind when they come in uh, with that type of mindset and approach. And we've looked at this in so many different contexts. And what we found is that when we're able to acknowledge the other's perspective, so you have to listen because otherwise it's very difficult to acknowledge that another perspective exists. When you are able to add your claims, so rather than saying something like, I'm 100% sure that this is the right way of proceeding, and you say one possible way of moving forward is X. When you are focused on the maybe one or two things where you're actually agreeing with the other person, no matter how small or obvious, that those are elements that allow us to signal receptiveness to the other side. And as I said, the benefits are quite large, not only in helping you have a more productive conversation and come up with uh, better results, but also you're going to be more persuasive to the other side. I love that. That is so, so helpful. I spoke recently to Adam Kahane about how we can facilitate better collaboration, which really ties into, of course, our last question. But I wanted to read from an article that you wrote in Harvard Business Review on how we can crack the code on sustained collaboration. You write that when I analyzed sustained collaborations in a wide range of industries, I found that they were marked by common mental attitudes, widespread respect for colleagues' contributions, openness to experimenting with others' ideas, and sensitivity of how one's actions might affect both colleagues' work and the mission's outcome. Yet, these attitudes are rare. Instead, most people display the opposite mentality, distrusting others and obsessing about their own status. How do you think that we as leaders can encourage that outward focus? And could you give an example of an organization that you think does that really, really well? Mm-hmm. The organization that comes to mind is Pixar Animation Studios, which is actually an organization that I mentioned quite a bit in the article. And the reason why it stands out to me is that Uh, They have coaches that actually train leaders and managers and really whoever wants to take these classes on these skills. And I found that too often in organizations, collaboration is seen as a value to impart rather than a skill to strengthen or further develop. And so Pixar stood out to me as an example where they take this idea of skill quite seriously. And so on things that might come normal to people in situations where where I work, actually, we, we don't see it that often. Take listening. It would be a one of them. We all nod. We know what that is. But I've been in way too many meetings where I don't see practice. Rather than listening because you want to understand, you're listening because you want to get ready to talk uh, or you're thinking about the main point uh, that you want to bring forward. And so the best organizations are the ones that are going back to some simple skills that are truly helpful when we get to work with other, listening being one of them, receptiveness uh, is another, and also curiosity. I find that There is so much judgment in our conversation. Maybe we're in a brainstorming session and you come in with an idea and the first thing that I think of is, 
No, because here's the 1700 reasons for why that is not going to work, especially when your idea is different from mine. And being curious means, okay, let me understand that better. Um, why is it that you think this is a good idea? Uh, what made you think of it? And so those are skills that we can practice, uh, but we're more likely to practice them if we recognize and refer to them as, in fact, skills that might seem simple, but actually don't come naturally to most of us. That's that's awesome. And I, I wanted to, to reconnect to something that I think, and, and of course you you talk, I think, a lot about that in, in Rebel Talent. And, and, and you said in an interview with the Harvard Gazette that so often we, when we talk about good, indifferent or inclusive workplaces, we think about the conditions that each of us can create to foster a more inclusive environment, whether we're having a conversation, a meeting or other interactions. But what we don't give a lot of space to, though, is almost as important or maybe even more important is what if you're the person who doesn't feel welcomed or cherished for the views and differences that you bring forward. And 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 that, of course, ties into the concept of being your authentic self at work and how we can show up as our authentic selves. And, and one of your recent studies was titled to, to be or not to be your authentic self, catering to others' preferences hinders our performance. So what what do you think through your research, through your writing, that hinders us from being our authentic selves? And, and what are the consequences to too much catering to other people's preferences? It's such a great question. We spend a lot of time thinking about the impressions that we make on others. And often we are so stuck uh, thinking about what type of impressions we make on others is that we tailor our own behaviors to others' expectations or to what we believe other preferences are. And what we fail to realize is that that is not a good approach. In the research that I've done, I've looked at this across a variety of settings. One is, for instance, uh, entrepreneurial competitions. So looking at how entrepreneurs make their pitches to potential venture capitalists who can invest in their ideas. And what we find is that when the entrepreneurs are more authentic and genuine in their pitching, they're also three times more likely to get money for their ventures. But you can also think about a totally different context. We looked at the power of authenticity in contexts where jobs are very scripted. So with some of my colleagues a few years ago now, since it was in 2011, we worked with a company called Wipro Technologies. They're based in India. And in particular, we were working with the business process outsourcing inside of the business. So imagine people in call centers. And what Wipro had experienced for quite some time is very high levels of turnover. Maybe not surprisingly, given the job that they were doing, but they found themselves hiring a lot of people all the time, spending large amount of time and money to train them. They had this six to eight weeks long training and then putting them into the job and people would leave 45 to 60 days in the job. So not the greatest investment from their standpoint. And when my colleagues and I talked to the people who were leaving, the experience was one of, I feel as if I need to check my identity at the door. And so we created an intervention where just for half hour on the first day during their welcoming to the organization, they had a moment to think about who they are, 
what are their strengths, what makes them feel authentic, and how they could bring that out more often in the work that they did. And when we looked at the turnover rates seven months later, the people who had that moment of reflections would much more likely to be with the organization. They also performed at higher level, as we know from the ratings on the customer calls. And they also experienced more job satisfactions as compared to the group of people who didn't have that moment of reflection. And so authenticity is powerful. We don't think it is, but it's truly powerful. And it's interesting that I think we need to think of it in two ways. One is for us as the individuals and the organization, we do have the courage to bring our contributions forward, to speak our mind with respect. It doesn't mean being unfiltered, uh, but it does mean having the courage to express our views, preferences, and bring our contributions forward. And then on the organizational side is to be more thoughtful about the ways in which maybe unintentionally we ask people to conform and we ask people to look like us, think like us, behave like us, rather than allowing for them to be authentic. And their culture, again, plays a really important role because we use a lot this idea of cultural fit. Yes, fit on values, but we should have flexibility on the how. And especially in the context of uh, being an inclusive workplace, I feel that often, maybe too often, this idea of cultural fit becomes almost a way for organizations to exclude people or sometimes even worse to show bias. And so it should be both way for the individuals to have more courage to bring their best followers. There are lots of benefits when we do that. We approach the work differently, our colleagues differently. We have more courage, um, but also for the organizations, especially through their culture. I love that. And I think it's so important that that distinction between thinking about, like you said, a cultural fit that is built on people who look and, and think like us or go to the same clubs or enjoy the same things and people who are actually aligned on the principles that are important to us as an organization. And I think that's a, such an important distinction. And and, and just before, as, as we're starting to, to wrap up this conversation, I feel like I could talk to you forever. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying this so much. And I, and I, I know that our listeners do too, but just this place of, of being authentic, just to, to get some very, very short thoughts from you on that, that in the perspective of leaders, if we want to build more kind of trusting relationships, if we want to build psychological safety in our organizations, a part of that is that we need to be vulnerable and authentic as leaders. And I think too many times as well, we put on this ill-fitting kind of armor of how we need to show up and and the role that we need to play. And what would you encourage and maybe what do you encourage managers and, and leaders in terms of being authentic to also build authentic relationships where other people feel that they can be authentic as well? Mm-hmm. I would ask for something simple, but I know it's difficult to do, especially when we are in leadership position and is rethinking what authenticity and vulnerability can do for us and really think about the fact that they're not a weakness. Rather, they can be a strength because they allow us to connect with others differently. One of the stories that I tell in Rebel Talent that to me is really powerful that speaks to this is the story of basketball coach Maurice Cheeks on a very particular evening in his life. So it's April 
three of 2003. Really important night for him since it's the 2003 NBA championships. And is there ready to lead his team to success, probably very focused on the game. And right before the game started, there is this 13-year-old girl who comes into the scene in the middle of the arena to sing the national anthem. And by the time she gets to the second line, she forgets the words. And so she looks around. Uh, she's almost panicking. She's trying to look for her dad at that moment, but nobody comes to help, except within seconds, Maurice Cheeks shows up to the scene. And he puts his arm around her, helps her put the microphone closer to her mouth and start singing along her. And what's beautiful about this moment is that if you're listening to the words, you're going to realize two things. First, he himself doesn't remember all of them. But second, his voice is terrible. I love the guy, but his voice is terrible. And yet, by the time we are towards the end of the song, everybody's singing. And to me, it's a beautiful moment that shows exactly what my research finds is that when we show our vulnerability, when we show our imperfections, and that for many leaders at this time of the pandemic might mean, I don't have all the answers. Let's think through them all together. Or I I don't know. I need your help uh, to think about this. When we do that, others connect with us at a deeper level. They understand that we, like them, are human beings. And so vulnerability and authenticity are not a weakness. They are a strength. And often we get to show them through conversations. So so just opening conversations and not trying to optimize on reducing as much as possible the discomfort, but embracing it, I think, can be quite helpful. I love that. Thank you so much. And I, I think it's that picture. Let's make sure that everybody feel that they can be a part and, and sing, that that's, that's what we need to work towards. So how, how can our listeners connect with you and follow your work? I would just first really encourage our listeners to get your uh, latest book, Rebel Talent. And it, it's, it's a great book. And I think it will be really, really helpful to them in their leadership and how we also think about creating that space for people to be themselves in the workplace. So how, how are ways people can connect with you? Absolutely. So the book is great. There is also a free assessment that is six minutes long. It's called the Rebel Test. So Yoffen is a good starter for conversations at work. And that is on the book website at www.rebeltalents.org. I also have a broader website, francescagino.com. So that's easy to remember. And I am an influencer on LinkedIn. So uh, that's an easy way to stay up with what's on been on my mind and what is top of mind for me and for the leaders that I talk to on all sorts of social media platforms. So whether it's Uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, but I'm also an email away. And I get most pleasure in the work that I do when I know that what I write or what I say is being helpful to people in their work and in their leadership. So I am just an email away. Do reach out and I'm here to help uh, and make sure that some of these ideas get baked into the way you do your work. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Are, are you on TikTok? Should we follow you on TikTok? I have not tried that. I have not tried that. I might go there next. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Francesca. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, it really means the world to us if you would share, rate, and review it on iTunes. 
We're super grateful for all the five-star views and generous comments that we received so far. It really helps us take the message of purpose and integrity to a wider audience. And finally, don't forget to grab your free PDF on leadingtransformationalchange.com. See you in two weeks.